Hello and welcome back to the live series podcast brought to you by Amicus. This is the podcast that gives you insight into the life and role of tech leaders from all over the world. Today, I'm joined by VP of Engineering over at Global Sign, Andrew Jackson. Uh, Buzzing to have you on, Andrew. Uh, thanks very much for your time. How are you doing? Great. Thanks very much indeed. Yeah, uh, lovely to speak to you. <clears throat> I know when we chatted a little bit before um, the before the recording today, um, you've had a really interesting career up to now. Um, and we will be focusing on kind of one aspect of that. Um, but for people that maybe haven't heard of Global Sign or haven't heard of your work yourself, do you want to maybe just give like a little recap of of, of how you got to this point? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I originally started my career as a software developer. So I was um, doing uh, assembly language. Uh, and in, on an embedded system for food processing. Uh, and I've worked in a, a number of domains across my career in um, social media, um, media as in TV media, um, marketing, uh, avionics, and more recently with Global Sign, which is a certificate authority. So sort of very deep um, security side of, of the business. Um, and so, you know, during my career, I've, I've worked in many different programming languages, as I said, started in Assembler and C and Python and Go and pretty much Java and everything else on, on the way. Um, and my career to, and my progression to getting to, to VP of engineering, I guess, started probably about 15 years ago um, when I worked for a, for a technology consultancy company. And, um, and we started working on providing um, software for uh, for the business we were working working with, and I and I was you know writing little tools and and various things as a software developer, and um, and was the original software developer for the team, and so started scaling the team really there, and, and learned a lot about how to hire people, how to build a team, uh, and left the organisation as a as the chief technical architect. Um, and then my next role then was, was a VP engineering role in a, in a, in a small startup, which was um, in social media. And it was with a team of probably about 15, 20 engineers. And, um, and, and I was employee number 40. So I had to build my own desk. HR joined the same day as me. And it was, it was proper chaos. Um, but that there's a lot of fun in that. And there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of learnings on on the way to trying to to grow a small company like that really fast, um, and all the the challenges you have with the original team and how they feel about being taken on that journey as you start hiring, you know, maybe sort of eighty engineers um, or more, and building out lots of teams and changing from from one structure to another, um, putting in all the processes and um, and all the HR things you need to do, which which quite frankly didn't exist at all in in the organisation when I joined and then from there I, I went on to actually a really big enterprise so I went to Dentsu which is a, um, a big marketing company um, they own lots of brands um, of which you've probably never heard of any of them um, but the, the customers they they work with are enormous and, and you'll have heard of all of them so it's people like British Airways, Jaguar Land Rover, um, Procter & Gamble, um, General Motors, probably pretty much every organization you've heard of and it was a really big challenge to take a small team there and grow them to be able to provide data capabilities and analytic capabilities back to brands so you could imagine you're putting out lots of campaigns um, all across um, digital media and physical media and you want to try and bring all that data back and be able to provide reporting back to your your customers um, and you're talking of vast amounts of data uh, that changes 
every day um, with some security and, um, and, and analysis that goes on by Facebook and Google to, to do fraud detection. So it's not a simple job just to take the data on one day. You have to actually monitor changes to the data over, over a period. Um, so I was uh, I started there as um, global head of uh, engineering um, and grew the team from probably a team of about 15 to uh, a team of about 150 by the time I'd left and um, changed from providing very niche services to um, a couple of brands in our um, in our business to being able to provide a ubiquitous service across the whole of the business. Um, and then um, and then I moved on to um, Global Sign where I am now. And, and that was interesting because we had quite a small core team of engineers that were permanent, um, probably about 10 engineers. Um, and the rest of the team was made up of contractors. So we had quite a large contractor base of about 15 um, engineers who had built an, origin, uh, an initial MVP. And, uh, and then we needed to, to turn that into a, into a real product and convert the team to be a permanent team. So there was a lot of hiring that needed to happen, a lot of structuring. Um, and the business is interesting because it has uh, an on-premise, on-site part of the platform, which is highly secure. And then we have the the portal and the, and the front end and the business systems, which are um, which are which are cloud based broadly, um, and they don't need to be as secure. And, and the way in which we can deploy software and updates onto that system is very different to the way we want to deploy and can deploy um, updates onto the secure part of the system. So that that introduced some of its own challenges on how do you structure a team and how do you get teams to work together um, when they're working on a, a vertical slice of the product. Yeah, it's a it's a massively fascinating career so far, and and I love that you kind of finished on on the kind of scaling and hiring uh, side of things because um, the, your experience in that does sound vast um, to say the least. I think I, I've always wondered, kind of, you mentioned there, um, <clears throat> obviously the hiring and scaling that you've done at Global Sign, but even in the role before that, going from was it fifteen to one hundred and fifty, um, roughly, that that's that's quite an extortionate amount of growth you know even if it was that over a short amount of time or a long amount of time or was that yeah over over the period of about a year so that's you know that's a maybe 18 months but it's you know you're talking of a lot of a lot of hiring um and a lot of time going into building the team onboarding people whilst you're trying to deliver features at the same time mm, yeah that's that's an incredible um amount of <laughs> to say the least um that might be um a very modest way of saying it um and, and i imagine that took up loads of your time as well but i always wondered how kind of if you've got you know say 135 new hires in the space of 18 months that original kind of 15-ish people how do you as a manager how are you able to keep their mentality intact how do you ensure that they're okay essentially for lack of a better sense and and, and... Yeah, i mean it's it's a real problem because if you're a founding engineer in a small team you are effectively the original product team you understand everything about the code you understand everything about the product and you're small enough where you don't really need a lot of overhead in terms of process um when there's a new idea you just talk with the other guys and you decide you know what you want to do um, and so everything's really nice and easy and as soon as you start scaling uh, there's a sense of loss and a sense of loss of control for the people that are original and there's decisions being made I guess what they feel is against their platform and 
and so that that kind of sense of of losing something in control of of their platform and their baby is 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 real and they go through a bit of a, a grieving process for the processes and the ways they used to do things before and the way things are done now and everything just seems really complicated and um, you know these guys feel very sensitive to um, to the changes that are happening to them and and so taking them on that journey is really important and so what I've done in the past is to make sure that they're part of the decisions around how we're going to scale uh, how we what kind of processes we need to put in place and um, they're part of the design and the architecture of, of how we move forward so they, they're not disconnected from this freight train that's that's driving everything forward and, and then being you know left behind because they're really core they, they they carry a huge amount of knowledge and information about the system and our customers and the way we we used to work and the way we want to work in the future and so there are some people that are going to really find that difficult and so you need a high degree of empathy to to work with those people and, and make sure that they don't feel um, like they've been cut out of the loop yeah it's one thing about kind of communication isn't it with 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 a billion different processes but when you do have a really valuable like you said core of people it's keeping them feeling valued and keeping them feeling like they're in the loop and not just getting lost in the in the ether of all these hundreds of new people um is a big responsibility and and it can seem like an impossible feat if there's if there's not that kind of consideration towards those people um, from above. So it's a really interesting point you make as well about the going through a grieving process. I think that's a really cool way of putting it um, because that kind of, not without labeling it, but it does give a really structured kind of response um, that you can then kind of, you know, apply your own kind of response to as a manager towards that. I think that's really important. Um, speaking of communication, how... I mean, we talk again vast numbers from from small numbers um, in a short period of time. All these new processes are coming in. The the core team that were originally there are trying to get instilled into these new systems and things. But how on earth do you actually keep communication held together? How do you encourage it? How do you make sure it's efficient whilst you're in that scaling kind of process? Yeah, I, I, another interesting challenge that you have is. Um, making sure that you have the right structure in place. So typically what I've seen is when you're really small, you start off as this kind of ultimate product team where you know everything about everything in, in the platform and you know who to go to and when there's a change to the system, you know exactly where you need to go. And now you're starting adding on these new teams. And typically what organizations tend to do and teams tend to structure themselves then into kind of these technology or component teams and so you'll see there's a team of the guy, of the people that do the database. You've got the people that do the UI. Um, and so that, and that works for a while. And then what teams start realizing is they start slowing down and they start um, finding it really hard to get things out the door. And it's because what you've created is this um, this dependency model between various parts of the platform. So one team that's doing the database, for example, now if I'm a team working on the UI and I, and I need some database work, I've got to put some work in for the database guys and hope that they schedule it in time for me to be able to do my UI. Um, and so you've, you've got to think about your structure. So you bring it back to probably what you started with, that, that 
core product team and so try and structure and work towards teams being um, owners of their own part of the product and so they can they can own that from from top to bottom so you, you can have database people in there you can have ui people in there you can have you know middle tier people in in there as well and that structure really empowers the team to be able to to work and communicate and own what they're working on from end to end with minimum dependencies now that's idealistic in reality, you will end up with some specialist teams because it's, you know, the, it's the complexity of what we're working with and um, some of the technologies we work with. You know, it's very difficult for an individual team to have all of that expertise. And so there will, will be some specialist teams and, and you just have to work around that and work out how you work out the dependencies for it. Um, but as soon as you bring that structure in and you start bringing the team closer together and owning it, that solves a lot of communication problems for you because if you haven't got to go and depend on other teams and have this this cross department um discussion going on the whole time it makes makes for a much more efficient uh, way of delivery there are times when you also need to do some of that cross team communication and so i found uh, things like guilds to be extremely useful for that so let's say you've got ui developers in each of your teams how do you then have a unified way of them agreeing the the format and the um and the designs and all of the different patterns and components we might use in ui and so you form a guild where all those guys them work together and and that's a, a place where they can meet as frequently or as um or or as often as they need to discuss new ways of doing things or patterns that are emerging and anti-patterns and how to solve some of the problems and they then own the ui space but then they go away back to their product team to implement them and that's a really good mechanism for getting um, technology focused groups together that that are not within an in a whole team of themselves. Um, I also found that uh, implementing some kind of innovation time. So Google, for example, you know, made famous this idea of 10% time. What I've found in my career is when you gift engineers 10% of their time, it's really hard for them to find where they're going to fit that 10% in because the focus is always on delivering features and capabilities to the business. And so what I've found works really well is to actually carve out some time. So put together, for example, a innovation Friday. And so every Friday afternoon, the teams or individuals can work on things that they're trying to learn or they can have an idea and work with other people. And then they present that back uh, as, a, as a, the innovation and thoughts that they have um, on the product and, and in the code base. The other thing that I think that also really strengthens uh, communication and the ways of working, because a lot of the a lot of the challenges you see will be where different developers are working a different way or different teams are working a different way. And that can cause a lot of um, you know, discontent around teams and, um, and disagreement on how we should work. And so making sure that you have the right learning in place and a consistent learning pattern is really essential. So something I've done with all my teams is to put in place an hour a week where everybody comes together and then we do some education. And so whether that's, you know, clean code or whether it's testing strategies or whether it's, you know, how are we going to solve some problems we've got in the, in, in our platform, it's, 
it's a space where everyone comes together and has a common way of, of learning and, um, and a common place to start implementing new ways of, of doing things. Hmm. Excuse me. I know the um, the really interesting thing that stood out to me there is the kind of innovation Friday afternoons. I think that's a really good incentive to kind of keep people free flowing. And it's not then just a case of, oh, you can just do what you want because it's a Friday afternoon. You can, you know, you've, you've got to present it back and everything. And you need to actually kind of prove that you have actually put the effort and the time into being innovative. But that will also have such a beneficial um mindset when when it comes to the team that'll really add to kind of the the collaboration no like does that does that help with collaboration and communication in itself do they work together on that or yeah hugely uh, i think it's i think it's a mistake to think of engineers as as task workers um you know we we pay engineers to not to do what we tell them to do we we tell them to to tell us what we what's possible for us to work on and this so this is a really important part of of them bringing them into the whole um, product and how the, the the business and our customers work because they'll come up with brilliant ideas and if you've got a product team with product owner in there and devops engineer and quality engineers then you've got this this group of people who can bring those ideas to life and engineers come up with some fantastic ideas i mean they're the guys that work in the code every single day they know what it can do and what it can't do and they also have really good ideas around what our customers might want um, and how they could simplify or improve the, the way the product works today. And so it gives them a really good space for, um, for bringing that to the fore. It's, it's also a really good incubation space because you can take some of those ideas and you then might take them forward to either put into the product or as a next stage to create a hackathon. And I, and I found this to be really useful as well, where there's been a seed of an idea that's come up in innovation time. Uh, and then the engineers then proposed it as a, as a hackathon project um, and then got the business involved in it as well. So uh, a good example was where we were looking for some automation. So one of the things we have to do in global sign is we have to vet all of our customers and it's a, it's a, um, it's a high, highly regulated um, space. And so we have to make sure people who are buying certificates to secure um, their uh, their communications on the internet are actually who they say they are. And that's a very manual task today. And so a lot of organizations that are in this space have to go off to different agencies and check various documents, et cetera. And um, there was a, an idea that came from the business around, well, we'd like to automate that. And we'd like to work with some APIs and some providers to see if we can automate some of the simpler pieces of betting information we get. And that makes a, a really perfect hackathon project where you bring the business together and technology and the engineers to work on the project and that that idea over a day and see what we can come up with. That then turns into a, a product feature, which we've done a lot of work around narrowing down a lot of the uncertainties around how we're going to do it, how hard it's going to be, how difficult it's going to be and what, what challenges there are in integrating it into our current systems, which is which is where it's really hard sometimes for teams to estimate when they're asked by the business, could we bring this feature in? And they're sitting there going, well, there's lots of unknowns. I don't know what the API looks like. I don't know actually what your flow looks like. How is the customer going to work with it? How are we going to monetize it? Um, all those questions, you know, come up at, when we start looking at the, at, the, at the feature and breaking it down. The hackathon and the innovation time 
are, are just excellent for, for, for breaking those things down really early. So as soon as you come into sprint planning, the team have a really good idea of how they're actually going to solve the problem. I love that. It's almost kind of like bringing a little bit of um, holistic thinking into something, a, a career that's really practical and very logical and um, and a very rational kind of, of, of outlook generally. And it, like you said, it is almost seen as a task-based um, career and it, and it really is. And there's a lot of creativity in it, which is something that I think needs to be unearthed more often, I think, for, for engineers. And it sounds like you're doing a good job of it over there, to be fair. Um, in terms of In terms of scaling, I know you said you've worked across a couple of different industries in your career. How, how does it compare when scaling teams? Does does it does it make a difference what industry it's in, or do you kind of have the ability to kind of have a a one size fits all template for for how you approach scaling teams? Um, I think that's a really interesting uh, question because I think over my career, where I've worked with real startups to, to huge enterprises, there's some interesting differences in the way companies work so if you're in a large enterprise there are challenges around how you do cross-departmental communication there are challenges with how you might do your budgeting how you work with finance for example to do asset tracking and, and time management etc um, which are not normal barriers you would get at a, at a smaller startup where, where you're less worried about those kind of things um, and it's those things do influence how you work and potentially how you scale but in terms of the challenges inside the team and certainly inside engineering it's it's broadly the same problem and it's it's broadly a, a, a people problem and a, and a process problem and um, and an efficiency problem so if you're going to scale fast and you've got a small team of engineers how do you do it without draining all the engineers where they're um, all either um, having to work uh, recruiting all the time rather than actually you know um, working on the code and and when they're onboarding are they spending all their time onboarding rather than working on the code how, how do you solve those problems because they're real challenges and they're real challenges regardless of whether you're in a big company or a little company the, the team still has to grow and it still has a, a material impact um, so again that kind of life cycle I talked about earlier where you, you start with a very small product team, really, who really know everything, that then go to technology teams that you want to move back to product teams. That's, that's the same problem. I've seen the same problem in Dentsu when we were a really big team. And I saw the same problem when I was working with DataSift when, when we had a really small team. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's the same. Yeah, it is interesting. I think especially, I know when we spoke a little bit before, obviously I'm in marketing and I know um, an engineer's experience of marketing. It's, it's, it's this, it, it, was, it was funny to me when you kind of mentioned some of the chaos that comes with working at an agency. And, and even to me, a lot of it was relevant. And I, it's really interesting to me to kind of see some comparisons between industries like that, especially from an engineering perspective, which is one that I have no experience in. Um, but it's really interesting to hear about. Um, when, when it comes to... So, you know, we've kind of covered the, not the basics, but the, the kind of view of, of how to approach scaling teams and a little bit about what happens to the core teams that were originally there. How do you, once you've got this huge team or whatever number of, of, of members of this team that you now have after scaling, how do you approach either creating or maintaining 
how do you approach culture? What what do you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, culture is is the number one thing for me. Is is building a, an open and trustworthy, safe culture is is absolutely paramount. And you start with hiring. So you start by making sure you hire the right people. And I mean, I've seen all the different ways of trying to hire people. Um, from I think in the early days, we we would do maybe four rounds of interviews where we would um, do a telephone interview. We'd send out a, a test for people to work on and then they they bring that back from, you know, there's a bit of homework and they bring it back. And then our first interview would be going through their coding challenge. And then we'd have another interview and then another interview. And and actually what, what I've learned is doing hiring, it, A, is very expensive and very time consuming, but actually what you really want to focus on are you getting the right people? Do they fit your team and do they fit your values and do they fit your culture? Because we can teach people skills if they've got the right mindset, but if they don't come with the right mindset, that's that's a really hard thing to, to deal with. And so the interview process I now advocate is a much slimmer uh, interview process than, than what, what we've had in the early days. And essentially it comprises of having a, a single telephone interview for maybe half an hour with, with potential candidates to see if they, you know, they sound the right, like they're the right sort of cultural fit, that they've got the right things in their career that we're looking for and, you know, how they think about solving problems. And then I do a, a panel interview. It's normally a two hour interview with um, various people from, from the team. So product owners, architects, um, engineers join the call. They only join for half an hour at a time. So they, they drop in and out of the, 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 the session. So rather than sort of having like five people trying to interview one person, which can be quite intimidating, it's it's a small number of, you know, a couple of people interviewing over the period of the two hours. And we don't send a, a, a challenge out to, to engineers to work on and send us to us before the interview. We, we do it live in the first half an hour. We, we set a really simple coding challenge. Um, it's not difficult. It's not like trying to work out, you know, the most effective way of of um, getting the results for the Fibonacci scale or something like that. We're not interested in that. What we're interested in is how do you solve the problem and what do you do when you're not sure how to to, to what, you know, what the right part of the language I should use to to solve this this problem is. And how do you go find the result and how do you then ask the people that are on the call, you know, how I how I should solve it as well? Because that tells you an enormous amount about how that person works and how they're going to work in the team, and and it's and it's been very revealing of of how people um, you know are challenged and how they work under stress. Particularly when you've got people watching you do some code and you can't remember what statement to use and you're off on Google to go and find it. And that's perfectly okay for us. We're like use whatever tools you need to to be able to solve the problem, because that's real life. Um, and then we delve into um, cultural fit. We look at the processes they're familiar with and um, how they've been working in teams and what happens when things go wrong, because that, again, tells us, you know, how do they how do they solve problems? What do they do when when something happens? Because everything we do is a is a learning exercise. You know, every piece of code we write is a new piece of code. Nobody's written it before. And so we might make mistakes or we might not do it in the most optimal way. And that's okay, because we should be feel safe that we can go and say, I've written this piece of code, 
you think it's okay? Is there another way of, of solving it from people perhaps who are more experienced or have, um, you know, done that, that kind of thing before? And so that getting the right people in allows you to then create that safe environment to get all the trust layers in at the bottom layer and have that openness and everything else pretty much falls into place from there. Because as soon as you have a safe environment, people feel like they can try stuff, they can make suggestions, they know that it won't necessarily work, but we can tweak it or, or we'll stop doing it if it doesn't work. And there's no sense of failure. Yeah, I love that. And especially um, it's it's difficult to, to ask that question without having the age old tech test or no tech test uh, kind of uh, debate coming into play. I think if you, I think I, I think it's a great system that you've got there, to be honest. And, and I think if you're going to do a tech test, do it live for half an hour because you don't know what people are doing at home or whether they've even just got somebody else to do it for them. And and like what you said, it, it's more about the process as opposed to the result and, and what they're actually doing. And and then to follow on with the culture fit, um, I think is is a pretty spot on process to have. And because I know obviously at Amicus, we hear of all kinds of different hiring processes and there's some, um, I don't envy some candidates, I'll put it that way, um, when they've got kind of one process has a three hour tech test that they need to do at home and they're in two other processes that want the same thing and they only do them in 72 hours or something like that. And and so actually going in and meeting the team and being in front of people to to kind of have that kind of, not test, but it's it's a challenge to kind of, you know, see how you work. Um, and I think that's a great idea. And I love the idea on culture as well, like you said, a non-intimidating panel, people dropping in and dropping out. You kind of, it's almost like a meet and greet and it probably does take the pressure off a little bit um, of the interview process. And that that probably stands um, really well towards towards the company setting its own impression as opposed to the candidate as well. And if you're trying to scale really fast, so, you know, if you take the example of, DataSift where we grew really fast and then Dentsu, um, you know, how, how do you optimize people's time? Because if you're taking them off of doing revenue earning work and, you know, enhancing our product to spend their time interviewing and you're interviewing, you know, people every single week and you're screening people every single week, you need a really slick process that means it doesn't take a lot of time from, from the engineers, probably senior engineers as well. I mean, they're not junior engineers doing this hiring and interviewing it's, it's your senior guys the guys that bring the most value who can guide and help you know other people and taking them away from that job so yeah it becomes really a, a, a efficient for, for those guys and my objective is always to be in a position where at the end of the interview we can have a, a 15 minute conversation and it's a yay or nay do we do we hire or not and there have been times where we've sort of gone you know we, we're not we're not sure. We really like them, but we're not really sure. And so on those occasions, we then put in place another interview and just to confirm some of our thoughts. But, you know, to be in a position to, to give an a, almost an, an immediate response to the candidate equally, you know, means that we can move really, really fast. Yeah, that's brilliant. It sounds like you're really nailing kind of having an in-depth process without being too elaborate. And that's ultimately what you want, especially when you're dealing with the numbers um, in scaling that you are at the moment. It sounds, um, you know, you need it to be streamlined, as you said. And and yeah, three-hour take-home tech tests won't get you uh, 150 people in 18 months no. um, at all. Um, and it sounds really great. So in terms of kind of, let, let's go back to, to scale in a second, the kind of the way I know we, we touched on a little bit of how you, how you'd like to structure teams and the, the kind of 
the consequences of, of structuring a little bit incorrectly and, and, and how you will end up, you know, even if you have kind of a hierarchy system, you'll still end up with specialist teams or if you have little pods, you'll still end up with specialist teams. But in terms of the challenges that you could face structuring, like, are there any um, kind of major challenges that are involved with either structuring or with um, kind of any other aspects of, of scaling? There are. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and interestingly, I think that's where the um, the company culture and the and, and the history of how the organization got to where it is does come into play. So if you've got a, a really strong set of teams that have that are technology based and technology aligned to ch to change those teams into product teams is not without its challenges. Um, you're talking about teams where they've probably gone through that whole growth and team curve to where they're at a, a performing level. And as soon as you start moving people around, you're going to um, break that that whole model. And, our, and, and the effectiveness and the um, happiness of people all gets affected as soon as you start moving people and changing the way things work. So, you know, the, the people aspect really can't be underestimated. People get really upset when you change stuff and you move them around and um and so getting your so i think of the of having your teams in a in terms of structure right first and then taking them on the journey to to being product teams so if you have uh functional teams that are the technology based that's that's fine um but let's get in in place those teams so, that, so they've got all the right um, roles in them so let's have a tech lead in there let's have a, a product manager in there let's put devops in there let's make sure quality engineers in there so you start putting them in a position where they can own their own space um, and then you can then look at well can i now start moving engineers around and strengthening teams by bringing in additional skills into that team so now instead of just being focused on maybe one area of, of, of technology like say the database they now have engineers who can do the ui bit or build a service that sits in front of the database. So you start building out the capability of the team sort of almost from inside rather than throwing it all up in the air and then, you know, sort of playing mix and match afterwards because that's just going to end up with, with a bit of disaster, really, and lots of very unhappy people. Yeah, no, I, I totally see what you're saying, and it and it does it does get a little bit chaos chaos chaotic when uh, when people are moved around. And you're right, you, you do have to have that consideration always as a leader as well to towards your team. And even if it is the the best decision for the business or for the structure or even for the culture, um, people aren't always going to like the change, and people don't really no. like change. And is is that is that kind of an aspect that you found? to be quite integral when you're making your decisions when it comes to um, maybe a reshuffle or when it comes to hiring even? Like, do you kind of consider, well, let's, especially hiring, I suppose, if you're bringing somebody new in, do you, I know you ask people's opinions who have interviewed them, but do you, do you consider the wider team when you're bringing someone new in or when you're reshuffling? Do you think, oh, well, you know, this group might change mindset altogether or this group might need to change some of their workload or is it something a little bit more specific like this individual might clash with this individual yeah i, I think all of those things um and i would say it's it's probably the the harder aspects of of this role um i think when i originally started doing this role i, I thought it was about putting in right in place 
the right processes and the right procedures and and then having the right reporting and you know kind of all that managing stuff that that, that you hear about and, and effectively being I suppose a, a bit of an uber um, program manager um, but but the job isn't about that 90% of my job is about people and it's about getting people to um, behave the way you want them to behave to, um, to to care about what they're doing, to have ownership for what they want to do, to work nicely with other people, and to um, and, and to enjoy what they're doing and, and feel passionate about it. And if you get all those things right, then you end up with really fantastic teams. And every decision you make, certainly in my case, I think about what does that mean to that team? What does it mean to that individual? And always try and steer it where you're growing uh, individuals and it's part of their career progression. Now, sometimes that can be really tough and it can be really hard for individuals to see their own um, challenges and to see where um, why you might want to restructure something. And sometimes you have to be a little bit autocratic and hard nosed and say, look, this is in the best um, interest of the business. We're going to do it. And you you break a few eggs when you do it. Um, but. I would say always do it knowing that that's going to be an outcome that you're going to have to deal with. And if you don't deal with it immediately, it's going to fester and it's going to become a really big problem later. So always nip those things in the bud. Always try and do the, the stakeholder management and the people management piece. Sometimes people aren't, aren't, aren't always on board with it, um, despite all the good reasons. And sometimes you just have to go ahead with it. And you've got to pick up the pieces afterwards, but always pick up the pieces. Yeah, that's solid advice. And I think it's 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 a something that comes up very frequently in this podcast, especially um, when you're kind of in any leadership position, managing stakeholder and your team's expectations and happiness. And it's it's a, it's an understatement of the year to say it's a massive responsibility, but it's it, it's an extremely difficult job and. Um, you've been very eloquent in, in kind of explaining how your approach to it and it does sound like um, you're absolutely nailing it um, in terms of I always kind of round off a, a, an episode with with this kind of last question you've started obviously given some brilliant points of advice and things during this episode but um, just to kind of round things off how you know what what kind of advice would you have for someone who is either looking to be in your kind of position at the moment with your specific job title or um, for somebody who is maybe approaching a big scale up or for someone who's currently having a bit of a disaster scale up or what, what kind of advice would you have for, for approaching those things? Yeah I mean I, I would say that um, engineering is just one part of the machine and we, we, we're one cog in, in how the whole business operates and so probably a lot of the challenges you'll encounter won't necessarily be in engineering. You, there are lots of patterns on how to do things well in, in engineering. Um, and there are some some good ways of, of thinking about how you structure teams and how you manage people and all that kind of stuff. But, but a lot of the challenges I see and the harder challenges don't exist in engineering. They exist outside engineering. And, and a lot of my role is actually working with um, outside of engineering to try and integrate us and 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 work better together. So I I'm, I'm a, a big advocate of this concept of product engineering. So product isn't a standalone entity, and engineering isn't a standalone entity. We we work together in harmony, and so product and product engineering is what we do. And so if you get a really good product team, 
who really understand how to do software product engineering and they're part of our teams, then that will ease a whole bunch of problems for you. And I see a lot of um, challenges where, where product are probably more like project managers rather than product managers. And so, and that can cause a lot of problems for engineering. And so really focus on, on how you can, you know, ease those transitions and the, and the communications between those different departments. Um, another uh, a, a key piece of advice is if you don't have automated uh, integration and deployments of CICD systems, really think about investing in that. that. That's a massive unblocker for doing agile well for allowing your teams to be able to get stuff out the door really quickly, for it to be tested, for the business to see it really quickly, and it enables automation testing. And so once you've got that in place, it's a massive unblocker for you, and it will mean you can go really fast. And so that, that once that's sort of there, it takes care of a whole bunch of issues which you will have to fight if you don't have them, uh, if you don't have it there in place for you. Um, and everything then becomes manual and it all starts pushing back upstream. So the business then get frustrated. They have to wait for things. It has to go through a product funnel that then becomes all a little bit transactional into engineering. So getting getting good product and good CICD is um, is going to really help you a lot. To and then, and then you can solve your people problems, you know, internally. Yeah, give yourself that space to, to manage everything else that comes with being a tech leader, right? Perfect. Um, oh, honestly, Andrew, it's 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 absolutely. I kind of wish I'd lined up some more questions for you, to be honest, because it's. Uh, I really could talk about this kind of thing, um, for for much much longer. And you, like I said before, you're very eloquent with it as well, and 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 really, um, you you made up some brilliant points. Um, and so I'm, but I will wrap it up there. I think um, we'll probably definitely have you on um, down the line at some point in six months' time and see how you're getting on and have a little revisit a global sign or whatever you're up to and. Um, we'll see how the team's getting on. You might have doubled or tripled in size by then and had another very intense scaling period. Who knows? Um, but yeah, so if you're watching on YouTube, um, you can hover over the logo in the corner and hit subscribe. Follow us on social media at Amicus Recruitment or at Amicus Jobs and then go to our website at amicusjobs.com to find all of our latest roles. Andrew, thank you so much again. Great. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.